As we begin this morning, I spent this week reflecting on the message from last week and what we read from Colossians. And as we followed Paul's prayer in Colossians, I find myself thankful just for the ability to know our Savior as he prays that they would. It is to him then this morning, our Savior, that we direct our attention. And I want to place to a passage before you to consider who he is. For some, this passage may be considered one of the most mundane in all of Scripture. And yet, I hope that in placing it before you, you can delight in its beauty, captivated not by the text, but by the subject of that text. And so I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1. And I want to bring to you a message that I have titled, Who Are You, Lord? Identifying Jesus Christ. As always, I would like to ask those of you that are able to please stand for the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, and we'll read all the way through verse 17. It says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathen, and Mathen the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. You may be seated. Pastor and commentator Daniel Doriani shares the story of entering a doubles tennis tournament at his local club. And while he was very excited for this tournament, he was also somewhat concerned because in this particular match, he was facing those that were considered the number one in their league. During warm-up, his hope of an upset grew when he saw that one of these guys was not only left-handed, but he hit the ball very erratically. They concluded that 
how well they played then would probably be determined by this person's partner, somebody who had not yet arrived. When that person was a no-show, the club pro sought a replacement so that the match wouldn't have to be forfeited. Daniel shares that during the ongoing warm-up after that, it was clear that this man, this replacement, was indeed very good. And so Daniel and his partner strategized that in order to even have a chance, they were going to have to hit their balls to the left-handed player. They did, and the match was fairly even, at one point being tied 4-4 in that first set. And then they lost eventually by 6-4, a very close game. As they began the second set, though, they heard the replacement player say, I have to finish very soon. After that point, this replacement was all over the court. No matter what they did, this replacement was returning the balls, and he was doing so very quickly and very forcefully. And they lost the set 6-1 in 14 minutes. Clearly, something had been up. And so Daniel Doriani decided to ask the player, well, who are you? And the man responded, I'm just another pro here at the club. I'm filling in so that you guys didn't have to forfeit your match. He'd already figured that much out. And so he asked again, but who are you? At that point, he learned that this man had a lot of tennis credits. He he was included in pro tours. He had played for countries. And he was ranked within the top 200 of players in the world. After he understood who this man was, their loss then began to make sense. Only when Daniel Doriani understood who the characters were, could he then understand the story. The same is true for scripture. Everything makes sense only when we understand the characters that scripture presents. At the calming of the waters in Mark chapter 4, The disciples asked in verse 41, Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? At the forgiveness of sins of the woman who washed Jesus' feet and wiped him with his hair, the Pharisees asked, Who can forgive sins? At what is known as the triumphal entry in Matthew 21, there are many celebrating by waving their palm branches, but there are many more just asking, Who is this man? And then before his accusers, Christ is asked several times in Matthew 26 and 27, before Caiaphas and before Pilate, in varying ways they ask, are you the king of the Jews? In each of these instances, the stories only make sense when we know who Jesus Christ is. It is on this principle that the book of Matthew begins. He begins with the genealogy of Christ, Because it is considered boring and unnecessary, many of us tend to to give nothing but a passing glance to this chapter of Matthew, or at least these initial 17 verses. Yet in true conviction that indeed all of Scripture is God-breathed and all of Scripture is useful, we do not want to overlook this passage. We want to look it over. (coughs) For the Jews, one's origins were crucial. Last week, when we were looking at Colossians 1, 13 and 14, we went all the way back to Numbers 25, where there was a census recorded. And that census was used in order to divide up the promised land. Because the land allotment was based on tribal size, they needed an accurate count, an accurate count of who was part of which tribe. They needed to know 
which tribe each person belonged to then. They needed to know their lineage. Priests were qualified based on their lineage as well. The tribe of Levi needed to be able to prove that they were indeed from that tribe. And if you have been with us in Sunday school, you would remember all the way back to Ezra chapter 2, verses 61 and 62, where some of those people were disqualified because they could not prove that they were a Levite. Perhaps they were, but because they had no proof, they were considered unclean. And even the birth of Christ speaks to the importance of genealogies, not only to prove his legitimacy as the heir, but it was the very census that drew Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem, thus completing a prophecy fulfilled or proclaimed long ago. Thus God's only plan makes sense when we understand God's only son. It was no accident that I ended last week's message with the question, who is Christ? Last week we saw that in the course of Paul's prayers for the Colossians, That he explains through Christ, people have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. How is it that Christ is able to forgive sins? How is it that Christ is able to offer redemption? Should we not look at that description in Colossians and ask then, who is Christ? Paul himself begins to answer the question in the very next verses. Following his declaration of Christ's forgiveness, he will launch into this great theological treatise that just exalts who Christ is, beginning in verse 15. And when we return to Colossians, that's where we will begin. But this morning, we turn to Matthew chapter 1 to answer that question. Before us this morning is a fascinating list of names, and I know I read them very quickly, but there's some interesting characters within that that probably warrant a lot of a deeper study. But in reading this text, there are three names that stand out above all, and they come in verse 1, Jesus Christ, David, and Abraham. Therefore, this morning we focus on those men in order to see who is Christ. And I want you to note first that Christ is the son of Joseph and Mary in verse 1. Verse 1 reads, the book of the genealogy of Jesus. Jesus Christ was a man sent to save men. He came to humanity so that humanity might be saved. As a man, he had human emotions and experiences. He had human attitudes and activities and human thoughts and trials. In every way, Jesus was fully God and fully man, having human parents, a human history, and human form. He is first presented by his human parents. Before we're ever introduced to Jesus Christ, we're first introduced to his parents, Joseph and Mary. Even as an adult, Jesus is frequently identified by his relationships to his parents. In Mark 6, 3, just as he begins to teach in his very hometown of Nazareth, the people respond to his teaching, saying, How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? When he is called by Jesus, Philip responds by going to find Nathanael. And then he tells Nathanael, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth the son of Joseph. 
And then in John chapter 6, having just fed the 5,000 and proclaiming himself the bread of life from heaven, the people respond, the Jews specifically respond, grumbling at this claim, saying, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? In our text this morning, Matthew 1.16 expands our understanding, not only identifying Jesus and Mary, but it clarifies their relationship. In a departure from the previous verses, Matthew retreats from calling Joseph the father of Jesus. For 15 verses prior, we read the repeated phrase of who is the father of whom, so that it almost becomes this soothing song. Zadok, the father of Achim, Achim, the father of Eliad, Eliad, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph. But then at verse 16, it abruptly stops. Joseph is not identified as the father of Jesus. Instead, he's identified only as the husband of Mary. So as to leave no doubt, the next phrase says it even more plainly of whom Jesus was born. Because whom in the original Greek text is feminine, that cannot refer to Joseph. That has to refer to Mary, meaning that Christ is born to Mary. He is the son of Mary, and thus that fulfills the prophecy of Genesis 3.15, that the Messiah would be born of the seed of a woman. Jesus was human with human parents. He's also a man with a human history. He experienced a physical birth. He experienced physical growth. He experienced a physical, or had a physical hometown, Nazareth. He even had a physical trade. He is known as a carpenter. The four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all record this physical history of Jesus' birth, of his life, of his death, and of his resurrection. It preserves for us a record of Christ's background. Just as any human does, Jesus had a physical story. Finally, Christ has a human form. Philippians 2, 6-8 says, Though he, Christ, though he was in the form of God, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, being found in human form. Those last words, born in the likeness of man, being found in human form, are extraordinary words. They express not just the physical character of God, but the intrinsic character of God. Jesus is unique because he is a physical revelation of God's self to humanity. He is a physical portrayal of God's divinity. The only one who has come in human form and yet was God. Notice his intrinsic value though in that, or his intrinsic character. By doing this, God displays his own love and his own compassion. He unveils himself to the people in the form of Christ. Christ is a physical portrayal of God's divinity a gift that people may enjoy him, not only for a temporary moment in history, but as a permanent experience in eternity. 
Truly, this is a gift of God, something that he did not have to do. Jesus Christ was not merely a man. He was God in the form of man. Essential to salvation is the humanity of Christ, that he was a man sent to save men, a person sent to save people. The wonderful provision of salvation by God is conveyed by the name Jesus, which signifies or means the Lord saves. The Greek form, Jesus, is derived from the Hebrew name, Joshua. And it calls our attention all the way back to the Old Testament, and specifically to the successor of Moses. Upon Moses' death in Deuteronomy 34, God commissions Joshua, telling him, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Given to Joshua is this great privilege of the final part of God's act of salvation for Israel. Joshua gets to lead the people into their inheritance, into the promised land that God had promised so long ago. With his sovereign hand, according to his sovereign will, the Lord has rescued the people. He has pulled them from exile in Egypt and saved them from their enemies and fulfilled his promises by giving them a share in their inheritance. In the same way, the work of Christ is to be that Lord's salvation, to save people from their sin, that they will be transferred from the kingdom and may receive a share in the inheritance. Paul pictures this well in what I hope are becoming very familiar words. He says it this way, Give thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Before we get too prideful, pay attention to the people that Jesus saves in chapter 1 of Matthew. Verses 2 through 16, there are 47 different names listed. These names represent nobility and infamy and aristocracy. There are kings and queens, noblemen and history makers. This genealogy here represents a who's who of human history. But more importantly, this is the family of Christ. This is the list that accounts for the legitimacy of Christ to be the heir of the throne. While most of them, almost all of them, are noble, very few, if any, are considered respectable. Each of them was embroiled in severe scandal and sin. Some of them were downright evil. Ahaz worshipped pagan gods and practiced human sacrifice. Rehoboam indulged in luxury and sexual sin, eventually overtaxing the people to maintain his lifestyle. And Manasseh sacrifices his own son in fire. And scripture even describes him as the most wicked king in the history of Judah. In a departure from what is normal for genealogies, Matthew also lists four women apart from Mary. They are Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba. Of those four, three are Gentiles. And an argument could be made that the fourth possibly was a Gentile as well. All of this pointing to God's grace that his plan had always included to extend his grace 
to everyone, not just Israel. Of those four women, three of them are involved in sexual sin. Some people would argue, probably rather unconvincingly, that the fourth was involved in sexual sin also. Of those who scripture reveres, even they still have their issues. David orchestrated the death of Uriah in order to have the child of Uriah's wife. Abraham is remembered for having lied about being married to Sarah. And even Mary, who likely was very morally strong and obviously very humble, even she confesses her sin and her need for a savior in her song in Luke chapter 1. What does that truth then signify for the rest of us? This is the family of Jesus. They are the very people that God has chosen to orchestrate his plan throughout all of history. It is through them that he will bring the Savior and that he will bring salvation. But they too needed a Savior. Certainly, we wouldn't think we don't need a Savior as well. Placed before us are 47 people. It covers 42 generations over thousands of years. And Jesus is the very first one to never bring shame on his family. In fact, instead of bringing shame, he carried their shame. I want you to note second that Christ is the Son of God. Verse 1 also reads the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Jesus' humanity is made more extraordinary by his deity. More than a mere man, he is God sent by God. The deity of Christ is established by that single word, Christ. To proclaim Christ is to proclaim a particular individual. When we say Christ, we're identifying a distinct individual with a distinct mission at a distinct point in history. When we say the name Christ, there is no confusion about who we refer to. We all know that Christ refers to the Son of God, the very one we call our Savior. So when we announce Christ, there is little doubt about who we are referencing. Even the secular world knows that when we say Christ, they are associating it with this figure from the first century church. But before he was Christ, he was the Christ. Today we use Christ as a name, but the original use of Christ was a title. He's not just Jesus Christ, he's Jesus the Christ, meaning he is Jesus the Messiah. Like a king or queen or president, Christ was a title conveying the office and function of a particular role. The position of Messiah is distinctive, though, from any earthly position having upon it are qualifications that no human will ever fulfill. Unlike any earthly role, the one who fills the role of Messiah must be morally pure, must be without a spot of imperfection. The one who fills the function of Messiah must be a perfect blend of grace and judgment, of mercy and discipline. And the one who fills the task of Messiah must be willing to sacrifice his own life. The one who is called Christ is no ordinary individual. He is apportioned by God, appointed by God, and anointed by God. 
Hence the meaning of Messiah, anointed one. The Messiah, or Christ, has been anointed by God, meaning that he has been set apart by God for a specific task. And then he's been empowered by God in order to complete that task. By the time of Christ's appearance, the term Christ and Messiah even were already used as a, as a designation for a specific representative of God the very one who would consummate God's reign on earth. So by the time Christ is here, when you say Christ, that's who they were thinking of. Unfortunately for Israel, this came to mean to them the one who was empowered by God to defeat Rome. They were more concerned about political and military might and overcoming the world that way than the, the spiritual However, Jesus' role as the Christ, as the Messiah, the anointed one of God, this role was purposed for something far grander than what any human could ever come up with or any human could ever conceive. Prior to Christ, prophets, priests, and kings were all anointed, meaning they were all set apart and strengthened by God in order to fulfill the purposes of God. We see this all throughout the Old Testament. But Christ was anointed to save people from their sins. Or as he says it, to proclaim the good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and to proclaim a year of the Lord's favor in Luke 4.18. In this role, he was prophet, priest, and king. As prophet, he proclaimed God's truth. As priest, he offered a sacrifice to remove sin and guilt. In fact, as high priest, his sacrifice was more than what we find in the Old Testament. For by a single offering, it says, he was perfected for all time, those who are being sanctified. While they had to offer sacrifice over and over, Christ once sacrifice, once and for all, was sufficient. And finally, as king, his military might wasn't to overcome just mortal enemies, as Israel had hoped. But instead, he defeats the greatest enemies of all, sin and death. This ushers in a time of not just peace, it ushers in an eternity of peace. Notice that every king in the genealogy of Christ has one thing in common. It does not matter if they were good or if they were evil. Every single one of them died. But Christ's kingdom is eternal because Christ is eternal. Far greater than man's reign is Christ's reign. He serves as a greater prophet, as a greater priest, and as a greater king. And yet he was rejected because he was not the Messiah that they expected. By the time we arrive to New Testament Israel, they have been waiting hundreds of years for deliverance. They've been through exiles and conquering and persecution and oppression. And so they were waiting to be delivered from all of that. But with this gift of Christ, we see two amazing things happen. First, Israel misses the Savior. They outright reject him to the point of crucifixion. Second, Christ makes it clear that salvation is available to anyone, not Israel alone. And if you want to read more, go to Matthew 12. In our call to worship this morning, you heard these words from Psalm 130. 
I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Jesus is the very Savior that Israel awaited. In fact, he's the very Savior that they needed. And yet they rejected him outright, because he was not the Savior they had expected. Let Israel's response be a warning to us this morning. May it point to the dangers of placing our expectations on Christ. Because although we may be found waiting, we do not want to be found wanting. That's a very danger of many of these self-proclaimed churches today. They're anticipating the Savior that they want. They're creating a Savior who will be more like a private genie rather than a personal God. <coughs> the same set of expectations is the primary cause for rejecting the gospel. They seek a Savior who will affirm them in their sin rather than a Savior who will remove them from their sin. When Christ appears, the people will always want more when they have expectations like this. It did not matter how many miracles he performed, how many people he healed, or how many people he fed. They always wanted more. When Christ appears, they will want more. To them, Christ is seen as deficient and themselves as sufficient. How sad it must be to live in such a state of existence. Few things make my heart more sorrowful than watching people reject Jesus because he is not the Savior they wanted. I'm sad because they are repudiating somebody far greater than their imagination. Someone who goes far beyond giving people what they want. Instead of being the Savior who gives people what they want, Jesus Christ gives more by giving people what they need. I want you to note third. Jesus is the son of David. Matthew writes the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Christ's eternal kingdom is the, is the fulfillment of God's eternal promise to God, to David, sorry. Few kings are as highly revered as David, and certainly no earthly king in the pages of scripture is ever so highly exalted as much as David. He is called a man after God's own heart in 2 Samuel, and in 2 Samuel 7, what we read this morning, we see God share his heart with David by sharing his reign. Reading in verses 12 to 15, we read these special promises. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be my son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. Jesus is the fulfillment of those promises. Repeatedly, Christ's legitimacy is, as heir is questioned. 
John 7, 26 through 27, the people question, saying, And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Matthew thirteen fifty four to 57 It says, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? And then they took offense at him. And John seven forty two, Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Despite their doubts, indeed, Christ is affirmed as a rightful heir. In Matthew chapter 2, verses 2 and 6, they refer to him in varying ways as the king of the Jews. Three times in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew calls attention to Christ's relationship with David, noting that he is a direct descendant from the line of David. And nine times in the New Testament, he is referred to with the title, Son of David. There must be no doubt who Christ is. He is the one spoken of prophetically who will inaugurate the eternal kingdom of David. This is a tremendous picture of God's grace even more. While David is spoken of very highly throughout scripture, we should not forget that David was also a sinner. The genealogy that we just read, the genealogy of Matthew, points out this most gregarious of sins of David's. In verse 8, says, And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. We all know the story. David's lust over Bathsheba, the adultery involved, which eventually led to David to orchestrate the death of Uriah. Who could disagree with God if he'd ever chosen to remove his hand of blessing over David? And yet God graciously continues with his promises. Much of this genealogy is a testimony to God's grace. With Jacob in verse 2, the line goes through Judah instead of Reuben, as we might anticipate. Verse 5 points to the story of Ruth, which is nothing but a story of God's grace. The mention of Rahab, a prostitute, shows this even further. We could go verse by verse, and each would reveal a work of God's grace. Never once was any of these individuals chosen by their own merit. Never once was anybody chosen by their order of birth only. But each is permitted a place in the lineage solely by God's electing work. The anointed work of Christ is to usher in the kingdom of David as a work of God's grace. Finally, I want you to note that Jesus is the son of Abraham. Following the title, Son of David, Matthew writes, this is the genealogy of Jesus, son of Abraham. As a father of Israel, it should be no surprise that every Israelite traces his or her pedigree all the way back to Abraham. The New Testament verifies this in the books of Matthew and Luke and John and Acts and Romans, in which were repeatedly brought back to the line of Abraham so that we can see the descendancy there. As a highly revered patriarch, it was a noble thing to trace one's lineage all the way back to him. Those who were especially religious were especially focused on this point 
They made certain to ensure that they were indeed in Abraham's line. In Genesis 22:18, God promises to bless all the nations through Abraham. As the son of David, as the anointed Messiah, and as the one who saves people from their sins, Christ indeed is that blessing. He fulfills God's promise to Abraham. It seems very fitting that Matthew starts his book by linking Christ to Abraham. And then he shows at the very end of his book how Christ is a fulfillment of that blessing or that promise to Abraham. That Christ will be the one who saves people from their sins and thus be the blessing to the whole world, as promised Abraham. It's key, though, that we understand that it's not because of Abraham, but because of Christ. Matthew 3.8, in a confrontation with the Sadducees and Pharisees, John the Baptist warns them. And he says, And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Jews linked their lineage to Abraham because they were convinced that that was sufficient enough to be part of God's kingdom. Even today, if you go to Israel and you visit, you will hear people proclaim, we are God's chosen people. And yet the same people will say, but we don't believe in God. In today's society, we could... We hear it all the time when you talk to people and ask about their testimony. How are you saved? And they will say, well, I went to church because my parents went to church. No, your parents going to church does not save you. Abraham does not save Israel. To them, that was sufficient to receive God's gift of salvation. But the the blessing is not through the relationship with Abraham. The blessing is through the relationship with Christ by simple belief and confession of him as Lord. The story of redemption and salvation from sin, mentioned by Paul in his prayer for the Colossians, it only makes sense when we understand who Jesus Christ is. It only makes sense when we understand that he is the son of Joseph and Mary. Only then do we see him as human, the foretold one who would save people from their sins. It only makes sense when we understand that he is the Son of God. He is the Messiah, the Anointed One, who is a perfect prophet, priest, and king. And it only makes sense when we understand that he is the Son of David, the one who institutes the eternal throne and fulfills God's promises. And it only makes sense when we understand that he is the Son of Abraham, the one who will be a blessing to all nations. This makes the birth of Christ an exciting event. It's something that we should look forward to because it is this supernatural act of God implemented thousands of years ago and yet still having an effect today, still having promises fulfilled today. It is a fulfillment of God's promises to patriarchs and kings long ago. And it is the provision of salvation for those who would call upon him. That's why this time of year it is important to celebrate the birth of Christ because we see him as Savior. And we'll get into that more next week. But for now, let us not be like Israel, always waiting and wanting, but instead 
We should be looking to our Savior with joy. Instead of asking, who am I? We should start asking, who is he? Let's pray. Father God, we come before you grateful of who you are. Father, we're grateful for your son and the ability to know him. We're grateful that you've revealed yourself to us through him, Lord. Father, as we enter this, for many of us, a busy time of year, Lord, I pray that we pause long enough to consider who he is. Father, help us to to want to know him. Father, let us look at your plan and be in awe of who you are. That we would be captivated by this long, glorious process of salvation that you've instituted, Lord. Father, this genealogy that you've inspired Matthew to write is indeed a testimony to that. That we can see that indeed by your hand things have been working out for generations. That this doesn't just happen, but rather it was your work. Something that you planned long ago and orchestrated along the way, Lord. Father, we give you praise for that. Because it reveals both your sovereignty, but it also reveals your compassion and grace and kindness to us, Lord. May we not take that lightly, Lord. But rather, may we seek to look at you every day. May we seek to know our Savior more and more, so that we may know you. We commit this to you. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.